you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ." But then, indeed, verse 8, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. And so uh, we go from this reasoning from Paul with the Galatian churches and the Judaizers who would be in their midst who are putting a legalistic yoke and a trip of rules and rituals and religion upon these new converts Uh, Paul said at the end of chapter 3 that the law did have a purpose. Uh, It wasn't to replace or nullify the promise of God to Abraham, which was that anyone who would believe would um, be justified just as he was uh, through faith. Um, But the law came to confine all under sin, to show everyone that they are all sinners guilty of sin, uh, to in a sense jail them or to be a tutor to them, to show them and educate them that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, uh, and that then the, the promise came, who is Jesus, who was the key to open that jail, to get us out of the cell, to give us graduation day from our schoolmaster of the tutor, and to not only that, to adopt us into the family of God as sons, and not only just sons, heirs of the promise, the heirs of uh, which comes through Jesus Christ. And so all that kind of being said and in-depth gone through last Wednesday and on Sunday morning, we see that uh, the Galatians, before they had entered into that sonship, into that inheritance, which is far greater than ever being told that you'd be Bill Gates' uh, inheritor, you know, uh, that, that it's the heir of God. Um, It says, before that, uh, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. So it's just important to note, um, not knowing God is equivalent to serving not gods. (laughs) Okay, and I just remember talking to a a dear old man friend of mine a long time ago who uh, was a believer for a long time, but he just didn't have this concept of, you know, that we... We were created to be worshipers, and that we are either going to worship our creator, or we're going to worship created things. Uh, as Luther said, the human heart is an idol factory, and, uh, and that was us. We were worshiping false gods before we were worshiping God. So uh, not knowing God is serving not gods, is how the verse kind of puts it there. But verse 9 says, but now, the good news after you have known God, or rather are known by God. So uh, kind of the man's perspective is, um, yeah, I know God now. I know Jesus, you know. 
Uh, but the godly perspective is, no, 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 no. I know you. <laughs> and that's really the, the higher, greater thing. After you have known God, how wonderful that we can know God, even though that's kind of the lesser of the two there. It's still a wonderful thing. And that's part of the new covenant as Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, or actually through 34 says, I'm not sure I put it in the, in the slides there, but listen to this. This is Jeremiah prophesying of the new covenant. And this is important because later on in our chapter tonight, Paul is going to say, he's going to compare and contrast the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. But here's Jeremiah prophesying of that new covenant to come. It's beautiful, man. The New Testament quotes it. It says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Uh, so instead of it being on tablets of stone, the new covenant is the spiritual work in our hearts that he's going to do. Writing it on our hearts, uh, he will, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And, and what does it mean to know him? The last part of this verse tells us, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's what it means to know God and to be known by God, is to have forgiveness, to be born again, to be changed, new heart, new mind, uh, the being born again. Uh, that's what it means to know God. Or, as Paul goes on to say, or rather, are known by God. Known by God. Now listen, 1 Corinthians 8, 3. Josh, you want to read this? So the Galatians had gone to this point where they had loved God and they were known by God. So... That's part of this new relationship that we have with him. Uh, we all know the very sobering words of Jesus um, when he says, many will say to me on that day, uh, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and work many wonders in your name and had all sorts of, of uh, ecstatic and dramatic signs accompanying their life. And yet the Lord says, away from me, I never knew you. So the, really the most important thing is for us to be saved, to be born again, to be partakers of the new covenant. And in that, we know God, we are known by God, we have our iniquities forgiven. But look, look at what Jesus says. I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So if we have lives that are practicing lawlessness, just practicing it, unrepentant, practicing sin, that, that doesn't mark a life that's had their iniquities forgiven. Because we've, we've had our iniquities forgiven. Man, we realize how big of a deal that is. And it doesn't mean that we won't sin anymore. It means we won't continue practicing sin. 
just habitually without a care in the world, no repentance, no godly sorrow, just keep going. Um, Jesus says, get, get away. I don't know you. you. You're a practicer of lawlessness. It's obvious you've never partaken of the new covenant that changes lives. Uh, Blaine, you want to read 2 Timothy 2.19? And so we are those that know God by his grace. We are those that are known by God by his grace. And it's a promise. It's a seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And he calls those who are his to turn away from sin. But then he says, okay, so you know God and you are known by God. So how is it? He's like flabbergasted that you turn again or return to weak and beggarly elements. He says, to which you desire again to be in bondage. So how is it that you return to this stuff of trying to do it on your own again? As Proverbs 26, 11 says, Dustin, you got it? Yeah, so I mean, for us to know God, be known by God, be born again, partakers of the new covenant, experiencing grace, um, uh, having our iniquities forgiven, uh, how is it that we would go back to a works-based righteousness that is Old Testament style that ends in condemnation and does nothing but confine us under sin? It's the same thing, Paul is saying, as a dog going back to his vomit to lap it up. I mean, that is, that's disgusting, obviously. But I think Dustin says, as a dog returned to his owner. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> you got to read the rest of it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I just had to teach you there. Don't worry, Kimmy, you'll get yours. Um, <clears throat> but listen how the verse said, weak and beggarly elements in our verse there in Galatians. The RSV translators regarded it this in their translation, weak and beggarly elements elemental spirits. And so the RSV translators recognized it, even from clear back in in, uh, verse 3 of Galatians 4, to be something that is spiritual that's going on. They're turning back in something spiritual to weak and beggarly spirits. And it's the same enslaving things that we see in verse 8 and in verse 9. Uh, He says, you once were enslaved, basically what he's saying, to demonic beings, okay? So to go back to the weak and beggarly elements is to go back to weak, which speaks of being sick, morally weak, and that they offer no strength. So to go back to our works, fleshly earned righteousness in in uh, appeasing God and standing before God, that is something that offers no strength, never has, never will. Paul says it's weak, it's beggarly, which means it's poor of little value, just like a beggar on the streets in in, uh, rags, which speaks of that those things bestow no riches to us. Romans says in chapter 8, verse 3, that the law was weak in the flesh, so the law could never be accomplished because of my, my flesh couldn't do it. It was beggarly and weak. And they were elements which speak of basic principles or 
Again, RSV, elemental spirits. Just look back about six verses. We already read it tonight. Verse 3, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So it's speaking of something demonic and worldly going on. Demonic things that bring us into bondage and really will eventually lead to hell. And it says that you desire, you wish and want to go again to bondage and slavery to be controlled by these weak, beggarly elements, even demonic stuff. They bring you into bondage. They don't bestow riches. They offer no strength. And yet we always go back to it. At least the Galatians were. And it often is our default. J.B. Phillips writes it this way in our Galatians 4 passage. At one time when you had no knowledge of God, you were under the authority of gods who had no real existence. So do you see how he's linking idol worship to weak beggarly spirits? Okay. But now that you've come to know God, or rather known by him, how can you revert to dead and sterile principles and consent to be under their power all over again. As Acts 15.10 says, it's a yoke upon your neck that neither you nor your fathers were ever able to bear. It always ended in hell and condemnation. And what's interesting is we just don't think of that as spiritual darkness, do we? Trying to, you know, just earn it, earn it on our own and just muster up strength to sanctify ourselves and save ourselves and do good and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And heck, isn't that like American? You know, I mean, isn't that like we do it, man. We're workers. We got ethic, you know, like, man, this is, that's the American dream, pulling yourself up out of the, the gutters. And so oftentimes we take that and we put it into the spiritual realm. But we don't realize that that is just as demonic as being involved in some voodoo practice. Or just as dark as being involved in uh, spiritism or witchcraft or new ageism or being a part of a cult. When I was uh, looking for a house in Prineville about five years ago, we were up on Cherry Loop looking at a house. And it's, it's kitty corner down the street from where the clouds live, so lock your windows at night. Um, and, uh, you know, we went in, we're kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, here's this house, and, you know, and, and uh, we, I go, I, I went by myself down the stairs first, and uh, I went down into this family room, and right away, whoosh, I just sensed just like spiritual darkness down in this basement. And, you know, it's not real normal, it's happened a couple times in my life, but just, whoa, something's going on down here, and it was just a family room, kind of a family room thing. And as I kept going, I started to walk into a bedroom in the back. And right as I start to go in, Lindsay comes down the stairs and goes, whoa, something weird's going on down here. And I go, do you, you sense that? And I flipped on the light in the bedroom and there was a voodoo doll with, you know, needles and pins stuck in it. There was a doll hanging by a noose to the doorknob. There was whiskey bottles and pipes and all kinds of things like that. And just, and when you got into the room, it was just, there were demons in that room. There was darkness it was just overwhelming. And of course, oh yeah, you know, don't do voodoo and don't, you know, and stay away from the Daniels and, you know, you know. And, and yet, what about your own self-righteousness? 
just as demonic, just as many people going to hell for all of eternity because they trusted in their own works and flesh rather than in the grace of God that comes to us through faith. Listen to what Piper said. Paul has uncovered for us a typical demonic scheme, which is just as prevalent in the religions of the 20th century as it was in Paul's day. It is clean, it is moral, it is religious, and it is hellish. One of my duties as the pastor of this flock is to help you stay alert to the deceitful methods of Satan. He is relentless in his efforts to destroy you wholehearted, your wholehearted dependence on God's grace. So if he cannot make you disobey the commandments of God, he will bend every effort to make you obey them. It's just as bad to obey the commandments in your own strength, not giving grace and glory to God, receiving grace and giving glory to God. That's what Paul's getting at here to the Judaizers. And he moves on to say, you observe, and we'll get into that just a little bit more as we continue on. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now at first, I mean, if you just stripped the Bible apart and drug on that verse like an evangelical cigarette and took it out of a context, you think that's a great thing, you know? Oh, good job observing, you know, the Sabbath and observing Passover and observe. Yeah, you're supposed to, you know? But the context is, man, because you trust in that, there's demonic stuff going on in your life. Romans 14, 5 and 6 speaks of, man, if you're born again and you're under the grace of God, it doesn't matter what days you observe. You observe them all to the Lord, not certain ones. And so, Kimmy, will you read Romans 14, 5 and 6? That's good. That's awesome because it's speaking of something else as it goes on about eating. But, you know, just the liberties that we have in Jesus because we're not under the law. You know, man, for us, we worship Jesus Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then we start again. You know, we observe the day. They're all the Lord's. And, and Sunday's special because it's, you know, the resurrection day, the Lord's day, the church fathers worshiped on Sunday. Man, yeah, we, yeah, Sundays. Uh, oh, Monday, Monday, core groups on, oh, Tuesday morning, core group. Oh, man, worship with the free, oh, ah, ah, you know, just can't get enough worshiping Jesus. But whatever we do, we observe it to the Lord. He speaks to the Colossians in chapter 2 about the same thing of this self-righteous observances that can turn into dark legalistic rituals. Let's, and I'm going to read this. It's just a long section here. It says in, in uh, the first uh, four verses here are, are gospel or what we call redemptive indicatives. It says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that's a powerful verse in all that we've been learning about Galatians and circumcision and do I need to be circumcised and become a Jew to be a true Christian? And he's saying, man, it's the circumcision of the heart that matters. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, 
being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And so what you have there is high gospel, all gospel, the grace of God, what he's done. Man, you are born again. You were dead. Now you're alive. And so what are you doing going back like a dog goes back to his vomit? He goes to say, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are shadows of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Those things were pointing to Jesus in its fulfillment. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus says. So it's okay. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for the man. So they can go ahead and pluck the heads of grain because they're with the fulfillment of the Sabbath. I am Jesus, the Sabbath rest, Jesus would say. The substance is of Christ. So let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. That's what legalism is. False humility. And worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, that's what legalism is, and not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that's from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ, referring back to that gospel, from the basic principles of the world, recognize that phrase, basic principles of the world or elements of the world, spiritual elements as we just talked about. Why is it, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. Have you ever heard that in a Christian church? Like just a bunch of rules put on you? <laughs> which all concern things which perish with the using. According to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, of self-imposed religion. Okay, so seems to be wise, but it's worldly wisdom. It's religion that's imposed upon you. I think Dropbox is updating there. Don't worry about it. It's just coming through. <clears throat> False humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. Did you hear what legalism does to you? Did you hear how powerful it is for you? Nothing, it does nothing and there is nothing. It's dead. Let me just read that again. These things, verse 23, have an appearance of wisdom. Man, when someone is legalistic and religious, oh, hmm. <laughs> oh you just, oh man, snappy. Got it together, right? What about false humility? Neglect of the body, you know, someone, oh, I've been fasting all day. You know, that's what Jesus is talking about, about fasting to be seen by men. Neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. And that's why Romans 1, 2, and 3, chapter 1, Paul says, hey, you pagans that are involved in every heinous sin under the sun, and it lists them all right there, you're disgusting, you're going to hell, you need to be born again and forgiven. And then the Jew who would say, well, I'm not that guy. I'm pretty religious and sparkly. He'd say, ha, 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 let me reveal your heart to you. You're just as bad as them. 
All of your religiosity has been no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You see, legalists, first of all, believe they are more righteous by keeping things written in the Bible in and of their own strength. Most often, it's those things that are easier for them to keep. Interesting that we can even become legalists by following good things. So those that are zealous for evangelism can put a trip on people if they're not out door-to-door knocking as we have in the past. Why aren't you out there? What's wrong with you? you know? And it's, it, you're condemned because you haven't gone. Or missions. Why haven't you gone to Nepal? You don't ever hear that here. When we're excited to go to Nepal, not everyone's called to go. And so if you ever feel condemnation from us because you're not going, that's not from the Lord. In fact, Romans 8 says, who is he who condemned? It's not the Lord. He's at the right hand of the Father praying for you right now. Things that seem biblical, things like that are written in Colossians 2 above, or maybe you have theological perspectives that can be seen in the Bible, and yet you impose those on people, and if they don't line up with your beliefs, then they are condemned. That's legalism. Now, there's theological perspectives that are distinctives and that's what i'm speaking of things that are open-handed issues within orthodox christianity legalists secondly believe you are more righteous by keeping things not written in the bible and that happens you know uh in the church today as well maybe it's uh that you have a conviction that you're supposed to homeschool and so you know there's a friend of yours that's not homeschooling and so you lay the hammer down on them and it's like hey you know like that, that's, a, that's a conviction that the Lord lays on people. Or, you know, especially as we're going into November and people are going to be voting for different candidates and who knows who, you know. I don't know who to tell you guys to vote for. Man, you need to pray and get before the Lord. But don't condemn someone because of a different political uh, ideology. We can work through and reason, but man, don't let that be what declares you righteous. The legalist believes you are more righteous because you do not do certain things. Maybe things that aren't expressly forbidden in Scripture. Man, looking down on people because they're smokers. Believe it or not, it's not a sin to smoke or to drink. Now, there's convictions, there's freedoms that we have or don't have based upon uh, what struggles that we have. Watching TV or music, and of course, man, we don't want to watch sinful things and things like that, but just owning a TV or watching a movie, just putting the hammer of condemnation down upon people because they do or don't do something, man, we got to remember that we got to go to Jesus. And Jesus will work out those things in our life to line up with him. The legalist is zealous for rules. You see this a lot in discernment ministries. The legalist is always condemning others. In fact, the legalist is always condemned himself because he's set up rules for himself that he himself cannot keep. Judges others who have other rules. Punishing self when we fail. The legalist believes it's about what you're doing and Jesus just becomes a footnote. 
Then there's what we call inverted legalists. Inverted legalists are so afraid of legalism that they start doing everything that the legalists say not to do. And it in and of itself becomes legalism. You see, a legalist says, do this, do this, do this. But the anti-legalist says, I will never do this and I will never do that. And you are less righteous if you do do it. And that becomes legalism. We saw that in our membership here. You know, those of you that are calling the body towards church membership, you are legalists. You cannot be a legalist and be born again. Or you cannot be a church member and be born again. And that in and of itself came around the horn and became legalism from another direction. Now, if we were saying you cannot be born again and right with God without becoming a church member, take us out in the street and stone us. That would be legalism. That would be perverting the gospel. So, we need to remember that it was the religious club that murdered Jesus. It was the ones that had the polish act all together. It was the ones that did not, did not, did not, and did, did, did. And they are the ones that tried to trick Jesus, trap Jesus, catch him at his own words, and then eventually they would murder the Son of God. And Jesus in Matthew 23, the whole entire chapter, comes down with a scathing rebuke against the Pharisees. And we don't have time tonight to go through it all. I do have it written down, but we're not going to do it. We believe as legalists, not we, but they, I want to say, because I don't want to be a legalist, that it's the things that we do that earn our right standing before God. Not only as far as justification is concerned, but as far as sanctification is concerned. Legalism as well. And Paul is saying that that has roots in demonic activity. I appreciated what Piper said. Satan does not care if you try to keep the Ten Commandments, provided that you take the credit for keeping them. In fact, he will assist your moral resolve if you will do it in that way. Satan does not mind if you come to church or teach Sunday school or preach or work for the human life bill or seek prayer in the schools. He's all in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided you rely on yourself instead of the spirit of Christ and take credit for it yourself instead of humbly giving all glory to God. So do not be unprepared. Our adversary has a clever scheme by which he aims to ruin us and the church. So do you see how there's debauchery and there's just full-blown paganism and most of us in this room would be like, I'm not that guy. But do you also see how being the, the refined, polished, religious individual can be just as dark and lead people to hell? And that's why in Romans 3, Paul comes to the point even for the Jew that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Because we need to have a heart change. We need to have that new covenant heart, that new covenant mind being filled with the spirit of God. Then we live for him. But it's a response of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, changing us from the inside out. I'm reading a biography right now about the... uh, late 1800, early 1900s evangelist from uh, Ireland 
named uh, W.P. Nicholson, William Patterson Nicholson. Uh, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He, he uh, was born again and we just knew that, man, I, I need to go tell people about Jesus. And he was with the Red Cross going through, or maybe it was the Salvation Army, going through um, Belfast and uh, just... Back in the day, you know, they'd kind of bang a drum and a tambourine and get these banners and just kind of walk through town, you know, and somehow revival would happen, like, go figure, right? And uh, as they're going through town, like, one of the Salvation Army girls goes, you need to get down on your knees and pray for the Holy Spirit, because this is dead. (laughs) And so what did they do? Like, four or five of them, they get down on the street on the sidewalk, and they pray and petition for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came upon these youngins right there in the street and they stood back up and began to preach and there was a revival that just began to spread through the city and that really was just a spark that lit uh, WP uh, on fire to go throughout the world preaching the gospel and being part of many uh, evangelical crusades. But he writes in this book, or it's a story about him rather, that he was on a ship from London to Melbourne, Australia with the Chapman and Alexander missions. And he writes, uh, the book rather says, William recalled meeting one young man who was going out to become an assistant minister in a big city church. He had no knowledge of personal salvation and considered that he would have to merit it instead of receiving it by faith on the ground of God's free grace. He was typical of many on that ship. Decent, respectable, and religious, but without Christ. I like that. Decent people. Respectable people. Religious people. But even this guy going to take a big position in a church, he was without Christ, felt he had to earn it on his own, And hadn't yet heard of the grace of Jesus that comes through faith in Jesus. How many, even within Calvary Chapel of Crook County, could be numbered in that same mix? You guys, we need to be praying for revival in our church that would set us apart from work, 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 work. And let us respond, 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 respond. And rest, rest, rest to the wonderful grace of Jesus. What Paul in Galatians and Colossians 2, as we read, he refers to these legalistic activities as painstaking, brow-beating activities of observing days and seasons and months. John Wesley was an ordained Episcopalian. He would go into the slums. He was very generous, gave tons of money. He looked saved, acted saved, and thought he was saved, he came to America to preach to the Native Americans. And as he went to a meeting at Aldersgate, a young man was preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. John Wesley realized that he was a slave and not the son that's mentioned clear back earlier in chapter 4. He was a slave to sin rather than an adopted son of God. And it was there at Aldersgate that Wesley would write, In that evening, I felt my heart strangely warm, and I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And John Wesley, who looked saved, 
acted saved and thought he was saved was actually saved that night. Even he had to come to realize that it's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but what Jesus Christ alone has done. Verse 11, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You've not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And it's in these verses that we have six principles between pastors and people and their people. And we're just going to go through them very quickly. The first one is found in verse 13. And before I get there, it's interesting. Verse 12 and on, it says, uh, it's been said, it's as if Paul takes a breath from verse 12 on and uses a more gentle tone. Uh, Similar to a parent who reprimanded their child for their behavior the night before and really laid the hammer down on them and then had a night to kind of think about it. And then, you know, they come down for breakfast. Well, you looking at Jenny? That is not cool. She did a mission slideshow tonight. (laughs) Mark, you might just want to move, buddy. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, McKinnons are just so fun to make fun of. Uh, you You know, the morning goes by, they're down there with their orange juice and their cereal and their toast. You've had a night to cool off. And then the tone is just much more caring and, and, you know, man, we're able to talk through it. And the, you know, things have cooled down a little bit. And Paul, man, he has been, he, remember how he just jumped right in in verse three of chapter one, just into bam, I marvel that so soon you've turned away from the truth to a different gospel. You know, that's how fast he brought the hammer down. And now he, okay, just breathe, just breathe. Sometimes Lindsay has to do that to me as a parent, like, okay, let's bring it down a little bit. We have people from church living with us downstairs and they can hear you right now. I was yelling to God, honey, how wonderful he is. Anyways, I'm sure they caught that through the floorboards. Six principles between a pastor and his people, or pastors and the people. Verse 13 shows us that external appearances ought to have nothing to do with the people's honor or rejection of their pastors. And we see that in Paul, how he had physical infirmities. Uh, and, and it goes on uh, to show it even more. In fact, the Phillips says, you know how handicapped I was by illness when I first preached the gospel to you? You didn't shrink from me or let yourselves be revolted at the disease, which was such a trial to me. It's like Jeremy and Nepal, like the villagers, like, ew, <laughs> what is he? I'm kidding. Jeremy's not here to defend himself. Uh you know, man, Paul had like malaria. It's believed he caught malaria going up uh, north of the Mediterranean Sea on his third missionary journey. It was so bad uh, going through some of those mountain ranges that uh, he almost died and that he, um, his vision was uh, paralyzed uh, that for like the rest of his life. Just physical infirmities, his bodies, his beatings and all of that stuff. Um, the Greek of this verse actually says, you didn't spit on me while I walked by. Like, that's how, like, here comes this guy, you know, preaching repentance, and and he just wasn't looking good on the outside. But but does that speak of the American church today? Guys, do us a favor, and if you're ever telling your friends about your pastors here at this church, like, just be real about us. Like, okay, like, don't don't talk about senses of humor or, you know, um, charisma or... uh, 
you know, anything that's external stuff. Man, I pray that if you boast or brag, you boast that the word of God is taught and preached here, that we cling to Jesus, that we preach grace, that we, you know, uh, that we are about the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. Man, don't let the things that people hear about Calvary Chapel be anything about young pastors or, you know, eloquence, which isn't going to be something you're going to talk about. But, you know, man, let it be all Christ, right? All Christ. Just talk about Jesus. What's that? Well, we're due for a trim, but, you know. Verse, you better stop now. (laughs) How's it go? I can't do it. It's like rubbing your head and patting your belly. Uh, Verse 14, and my trial, which was of my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. It's interesting that um, after all the talk about if I or an angel from heaven come and preach any other gospel to you, let them be accursed. And how does it say they received Paul? As if he was an angel from heaven. So at least he was preaching the good stuff, right? Verse 15. We're not going through the whole chapter tonight, by the way. I just decided that. Verse 15. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And so it seems that the weakness and infirmity Paul had was something to do with his eyes and may have had some connection with that malaria he incurred while traveling on his missionary journeys. At the end of our book of Galatians, he's kind of concluding this part and it's believed that he took the pen from his secretary who was writing it and began writing the conclusion. And it says, see, this is Galatians six eleven. see with what large letters I've written you with my own hand. Because <laughs> he can see it. He's like, Paul, you know. Is that how you signed your name, Paul? I thought so. Okay. Uh, Secondly, don't let your honor or rejection of your pastors be through private theological fads and fancies. Okay. The Judaizers had those. They had the fads and the fancies, but they were peddling a false gospel. As a congregation, let's be thankfulness for the faithfulness of pastors to stick to the word of God. And Paul would say, just because I laid it all on the line, are you going to reject me? Hope you have pastors that lay it all on the line, even if it means a drop in popular, um, popularity. Is he loyal to the truth of the Bible, as Paul was, is the third thing. Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That is gleaned from that verse. As Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. So any shepherd that's worth his salt must have the sheep's best interest at heart. And here, these guys are zealously courting so that they can lead into bondage. And, uh, man, when the Mormons come to my door, uh, they came by the other day, and it was a neat conversation between Lindsay and them, but I was sick and sitting on the couch, and I heard, and, man, those guys were smooth. Man, there was some, like, mm, man, they were pulling out the, just the charm. I mean, and, you know, you can spot a Mormon missionary oftentimes. I mean, they are good-looking guys, you know, and they are trimmed, and right? They are a package Then they offer to come do your dishes and mow your lawn. And it's like, come live with me, why don't you? Zealously courting. 
but for no good. Man, I, I struggle with that. A lot of times new people come to the church and I want to be loving and I want to, but I don't want to be like, mm. it's like, man, you got, if you stay here, man, stay because of the truth of the gospel and the love that we have for you. But man, I don't want to zealously court you for no good. Um, moving right on here, verse 18. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. A pastor's ministry ought to keep ringing in the heart of his learners, whether he is with them or not. One of my favorite passages is Paul speaking to Timothy, and he said, Remember the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And just that, man, years from now, whether you're with me or not, or maybe it's just tomorrow afternoon when you're by yourself working in the shop or working, you know, that the words from the gospel would be ringing in your ears, continuing whether we are present or absent. Verse 19, uh, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. A pastor must long for Christ-like character to be formed in his people. In verse 20, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. And so uh, we're going to do, uh, we're not going to do this, but verse 21 through 31, I love the, uh, the contrast between Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac, as I'm sure you all do. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> and so that's going to be Sunday's message this week. You're going to be praying about that. Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, works, the law, uh, just earthly works-based righteousness versus the, the picture that is in uh, Sarah and Isaac and the grace.